Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get the SeatGeek app too, you can be anywhere, even at your wedding, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. And with just a few taps, you can instantly find seats. I haven't had to use SeatGeek for postseason games. Fortunately, a press pass will get you into the ballpark. But without it, I'd be on SeatGeek every day. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. And it saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And it doesn't end with sports. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, then enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. Welcome to the Ringer MLB show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com, as is my co-host, who is engaged in a vengeance campaign against Camping World, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> Hello, Michael. How are you? I am a little tired. It's been a been a long well i guess it's been a you know a bigger weekend for you than for me but yeah, you know it's probably a little bit busier for me i mean i don't know what you were up to you were going to, to astros games i watched so. a ton of baseball this weekend yeah i watched parts of baseball in hotel lobby tvs and furtive checking of the at bat app during my wedding so that was what i did this weekend so it wasn't like real quick and we'll, we'll get to actual baseball uh you know, relatively soon, but like I've done the the check the at bat under under the table at, at you know. Yeah. But I had the sense to get married myself, not during the playoffs. So like yep. I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't faced <laughs> with doing this at my own wedding. So like, was there actual at bat checking during your wedding or the reception? Oh yes, there was because the Yankees Astros game two was going on during that, and my phone was confiscated earlier for the for the ceremony itself, so that I would not be checking my phone while I was waiting at the altar. Well, there was no actual altar, but where an altar would be, and I held off for quite a while. But once we got to the reception and the game was going on, I was I was doing a little checking. Well, but <laughs> yeah, well, currently can't find our our marriage license. So we had the same I'm, problem. I'm we had the same. Yeah. We had this really mean church lady. Uh, who mm-hmm. right after the ceremony was over, she just up and left and locked the the marriage license <laughs> inside the room where I was getting ready. And we had yeah. to go back like two days later and, you know, get it and get it signed. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully it'll be official at, at some point soon. But yeah, our, our wonderful editor, Mallory Rubin, was there and she was telling me your life's going to be different and asking me how I thought my life was going to be different. And I was telling her that, I'm going to be doing a baseball podcast tomorrow, so not that different. This is kind of like my pre-marriage life. Right. We are all shocked, by the way, that that you want to do this. Like, I was 100% <laughs> prepared to, you know, 
to let you have your your weekend at least and do this with with zach or somebody <laughs> well, else but yeah it was a, <laughs> a bold move by me to, to get married mid-october mallory told my my wife i can say that now it sounds strange but my wife jesse mallory said i should take a month off from work but i'm pretty sure she didn't mean that and she would actually be slacking me if i didn't show up for a month so we have uh, a lot to talk about we have Two championship series, which are now uh, both involved two games to nothing deficits. And we've got plays at the plate to talk about. We've got Verlander's masterful outing. We've got Puig's bat flipping somehow still being a storyline. We are recording late Sunday night, early Monday morning, just about almost where I am, probably by the time we're done talking. And Justin Turner just sent the Cubs to the showers and John Lackey to the showers and us running to our microphones with a three-run walk-off homer off John Lackey in the bottom of the ninth. So we'll talk about both of these series, but I guess we should start with the one that you have been present for, Astros-Yankees, with the Astros taking a 2 nothing lead and Yankees holding them to four runs in two games, which if you had told the Yankees that that was going to happen before this weekend, I would think they would have happily signed up for holding the Astros to four runs in two games. But the Astros held them to two runs in two games, and that's how we ended up where we are. Yeah, it's really shocking that and not just that the Astros have been held down, but that the Yankees have been held down because these teams are, mm-hmm. you know, I've said over and over by far the two highest scoring teams in baseball are playing at a pretty yeah. offense friendly uh, stadium. You know, that prop bet about Yankee home runs is not looking that great right now because we got no. the one. I mean, if it's possible to have garbage time in a two nothing playoff game that, you know, that's when the one Yankee home run came. So it's uh yeah, it's it's been and th- you know the other series has been uh has been pretty low scoring too. So it's just very surprising, particularly after you know watching starters get knocked out early throughout the divisional round and the wild card games and everybody hitting home runs and the juice ball and the swing plane revolution all season. It's yeah, yeah, you know, it's absolutely shocking. Which is not to say that the games themselves have not been terrifyingly intense. Uh, game mm-hmm. two, you know, Justin Verlander coming out for. Um, for the ninth inning, that was you know that was one of the more interesting uh, innings yeah. of baseball that that I've seen live this year. Minute Maid has actually played like a pitcher's park this year, and I don't know why. I don't know if the, whether Tal's Hill somehow being leveled has somehow turned this into a, a pitcher's park, but it's strange because we don't think of it that way. Uh-huh. And I don't know if there have been major construction or, or structural changes that would have led to that, but. That's what we've seen this year and to a lesser extent last year. But I think the the lack of scoring in these games probably has more to do with the pitchers on the mound who are also excellent. And and really, I mean, the Yankees had multiple ways to keep the Astros down in this series. I mean, not just the bullpen and the ability to miss bats, but also their defense. The Yankees are a really good defensive team. Maybe the best in baseball or or in the league, particularly after their mid-year changes and bringing over Todd Frazier. And so that seemed to to play into their hands a little bit in that the Astros put the ball in play and the Yankees do well when other teams put the ball in play. But And the Astros have done that. I mean, what did they strike out four times, yeah, four times in, in game two? Which is like, that does not happen in the playoffs against, and against the Yankees yeah, with Severino partic- going. Yeah, particularly in a Severino start. That's the other thing. You know, Tanaka pitched really well in game one. Severino came out uh, after... 
after four innings in game two. He took a line drive off his wrist and uh, Joe Girardi said he saw something like saw Severino moving his shoulder in a way that worried him a little bit. So he decided to be cautious and take him out. And, you know, I think that it's good to see him prioritizing the health of his his young pitcher, even though you wouldn't think that he'd want to do that in the playoffs. But even then, you can get two innings each out of Tommy Canely and David Robertson and still have Chapman and Betances uh and uh, Chad Green left in the bullpen. That's you know, mm-hmm. there's really no harm in taking Severino out early, even even though he pitched yeah. pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, defensively they've been fine. You know, Aaron Hicks is the the Astros have put a, a couple scary looking hard fly balls into the gaps, and Aaron Hicks has played very well in center field. The only real play that you know, well, I mean, there was the the game ending play, which which we're going to get to in a second yeah, we'll, in game we'll two. Talk about that. But uh, Carlos Correa's home run, which uh, bounced off the top mm-hmm. of the wall and uh, hit the glove of a twelve year old who might or might not have reached over the fence and sent everybody scrambling for uh, <laughs> for their Jeffrey Mayer uh, yes. uh, references. Um, Judge didn't didn't really look like he had a great beat on that ball. And particularly, no. you know, he, he robbed that home run. Uh, it was in game three of the divisional series. And you think of, uh-huh. of Judge uh, just sort of reaching up as he did, you know, barely leaving his feet. Josh Reddick had a, a nice catch of the wall. So, like, that was very much in everybody's minds. But he just didn't seem to be tracking that ball uh, that well. So that's one missed opportunity, I guess, defensively. But, you know, it's hard to hard to knock a guy for not robbing a home run. Um, mm-hmm. the, I mean, the other uh, defensive play is at the, at the very end of, of game two when Jose Altuve got sent. Uh, A.J. Hinch was very... Uh, he, he chose his words very carefully when, when discussing third base coach Gary Pettis who uh, sent Altuve, who was out by 20 feet, uh, if not more. Mm-hmm. Like, there was enough... It's just looking at it live, it's hard to to communicate how much time elapsed from when you realize that ball was almost to home plate and when Altuve, um, uh, when Altuve actually touched the, the, the plate. Cause that, I mean, that mm-hmm. ball short hop, Gary Sanchez and hit him in the belly button. Sanchez picked it up and almost tagged Altuve out anyway. And like, that takes a yeah. long time, even for a, a runner as yeah. fast as Altuve. So I, that's, you know, that's the other missed opportunity, I guess, defensively that the Yankees have had. And they had, you know, they, there were numerous mm-hmm. other plays. These have been two. I don't know if it's just the crowd involvement, but it never really felt like the Astros weren't in control of either of those games, but still they're, you know, they're still both one run games and you know you think of you know, Brett Gardner getting thrown out at at third base you know Marwin Gonzalez uh making the throw home in game one those you know those things could have easily swung the game like as well as Verlander pitch it felt like he was control he wasn't in line to for the win uh when mm-hmm. he came out of the game in the ninth so it's yeah it, it, this I I think the Astros are deservedly up to nothing but both of those games had several moments where it could have just completely swung Yeah, and this is something that ran through both of these teams' seasons with different results in one-run games. The Yankees finished the season with one of the worst records in one-run games, 18-26. and The Astros went 19-13. and That's a big reason why the Yankees' record didn't really match their run differential and their underlying performance. And I don't think that means anything. I think the outcome of one-run games is largely luck-based and to the extent that it's skill-based, it has a lot to do with your bullpen and the Yankees have the best bullpen. So you'd think that they'd excel in that area and they just haven't. And for whatever reason, those games have gone the Astros way all year and not the Yankees way all year. And that has continued into this series. But yeah, I mean, when 
when you get too incredibly dominant in different ways starts like the Astros have had first out of Keuchel and then Verlander and we'll probably dwell more on the Verlander start but the Keuchel start was also brilliant and Keuchel does it in a a very different way and he's on the edges of the zone and he's outside of the zone and he's getting guys to chase and he he just does it differently than really any other pitcher in baseball if you look at various stats about like the number or percentage of pitches that are thrown in the zone. He'll be at the very bottom. If you look at some of the stats that Baseball Prospectus has for command, he's at the very top. He is just the best. He is adept when he is healthy and everything's working at getting guys to look at pitches that are just outside the strike zone. And in the postseason, the strike zone tends to be a little larger, as I referenced on an earlier episode from some Jeff Sullivan research. And that has a lot to do probably with the fact that postseason pitchers tend to have really great command. And Dallas Keuchel is one of those guys who can live on the edge of the zone and expand it. And that can really hurt someone like Aaron Judge, who we will talk about a little more at length later because you have a piece up on him at TheRinger.com right now. The Keuchel game one start, I think, just is as spectacular as Verlander's was. I wonder if Keuchel's was more important just because Keuchel has not like Verlander was the best pitcher in baseball uh, from the moment he was traded to Houston down the stretch. He pitched very well in uh, in game one of the division series. He pitched well in relief in, in game four and got the win there. But Keuchel has sort of been up and down and, you know, he was good, but not completely dominant against Boston. But like this is as well as I've seen him pitch in, in uh, several months, just Mm-hmm. The and the different ways that he he attacked batters, and this is something that what Keuchel does uh, over the course of a start, going multiple times through the order, is he will start throwing a, like his first ten pitches uh, on Friday night were two seamers, and you know, seven of the nine Yankees the first time through the order didn't see a breaking ball. So he'll throw a lot of fastballs, a lot of cutters early in the game, and then slowly introduce the slider over the course of the game until he's thrown it about 30% of the time uh, later on. And this is something like he started Aaron Judge off with five fastballs and then threw him seven straight sliders over the course of his last two at-bats. So, you know, he's finding different ways to get guys out. He's locating well. And, you know, and everything moves with with Keuchel. To a certain extent, if you can locate a fastball with movement, and this is particularly if you're left-handed, it doesn't matter if you can only throw 90-91. And that's just, Mm -hmm. you know, the, that's the book on Keuchel. So it was just so important for him to pitch well, particularly as well as Tanaka's pitch. And I think this that that's something, you know, given when his start came in the division series and uh, him taking the loss in, in game one, it's going to obscure, I think, how... Uh, how good he's been and how important he's been to the Yankees. Because, I mean, if he's mm-hmm. if he's even just good against Carrasco in that game three, then the series would have would have started in Cleveland. So it's mm-hmm. the other thing going back to Verlander is his start wasn't I mean, he was awesome. But what set his start apart was he went so long, like going into Saturday, there had been 40 starts uh, in the postseason and half of them had ended before the pitcher had pitched long enough to to pick up the win. So like not even going mm-hmm. five full innings and right. nobody had recorded. Nobody had faced a batter uh, the fourth time through the order. Nobody had recorded an out in, in the eighth inning and Verlander uh, got all the way through nine. He faced five batters the fourth time through. And I think this is just sort of. Uh, him being comfortable going super long because he's got a long history of, of long starts, particularly in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how he and AJ Hinch had sort of had that conversation when they came down here. So, you know, Hinch trusts yeah. him uh, going deep in games. 
I probably wouldn't have sent him back out for the for the ninth just because you're getting, you know, getting that extra look at the the heart of the Yankee order. Although Hitch mentioned that he was like, you know, they talked to me about not letting guys yeah. face the order for the third time. So going fourth time, I mean, he was leaving himself up to second guessing and, and censure. Yeah, but, but I mean, it, it I was the one who asked him that question in the press conference. So oh, okay. I was the one uh-huh. second guessing him <laughs> on right. that. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't think that was going to work. And what Hinch said was you saw how good Verlander was. So mm-hmm. I wonder if, if that played out differently if Ken Giles didn't uh, throw, I think, 37 pitches in game one. But once you get past Giles, you're really into into a, a crop of good relief pitchers uh, for the Astros, but good relief pitchers do, don't really make you feel safe in, in the postseason. Like, you know, you feel feel good about uh, Will Harris or, or even, you know, Chris Davinsky's had his ups and downs this year. You feel okay with those guys or with, with Joe Musgrove in the game, but you don't feel like you've really got it on lockdown. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. that the, the results have indicated Hinch, even though I, it wasn't what I would have done in that situation, even looking back on it uh, and seeing it work. Yeah, no, he he left himself open there and it, it worked really well. And, and often you'll hear managers say, well, he was throwing really well. He looked good. And sometimes they continue to throw well and look good. And other times they don't. It's not necessarily the most predictive thing. And, you know, Verlander historically has had some split when he goes deeper in games, even though he is the prototypical, archetypical type of pitcher who, quote unquote, gets stronger as the game goes on and certainly, you know, throws harder or has at points in his career as the game goes on. And, you know, he's he's held up fairly well. I think what his lifetime, his career split first time through the order, 633 OPS, second time, 644, third time, 710. And then fourth time, he actually does a bit better because maybe that's a, a selective sample there. You only leave him in if he's absolutely dealing to face hitters that many times in a game. But it is really incredible that he is an outlier in this respect. I mean, no one goes as deep into seasons as Verlander went not even that long ago. At the beginning of his career, he was like a, a 250 inning guy, right? And Do you remember pitcher abuse points? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember like right when I was getting into stuff like that and seeing the leaderboard and Verlander was just he had like lapped the field in pitcher mm-hmm. abuse points just because he was making so many starts and going so long into games. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it, yeah, I, I looked back and I tried to remember that season where we all sort of wrote him off like it looked mm-hmm. like you know the velocity went down, the strikeout rate went down. Yeah. And that was three years ago already. Mm-hmm. Like he's yeah. and for oh, since um since 2015 he's been he was hurt a little bit in 2015 but last year was a runner-up for the Cy Young he was excellent this year and you know they got him for it's it's amazing that like he got through waivers and then they got him for Daz Cameron Franklin Perez and Jake Rogers that's like Mm -hmm. that's gonna that trade's gonna look like a steal in uh yeah oh I mean they're team their rotation would look totally different without Verlander I think you know they would they would have made the playoffs they probably still would have won won the division even as good as he was down the stretch without him but I mean that rotation after Keuchel after Verlander I mean no offense to to Charlie Morton he's a good pitcher when he's healthy too but it's a pretty steep drop off from those top two to everyone else and this team is so much more formidable with these two guys and yeah this was very much a throwback start and that was just 2011 was the year when Verlander led the majors with 251 innings pitched 
and then went on to pitch some more, uh, another 20 or so innings in the postseason. And that feels like it might as well have been the dead ball era just like six years ago compared mm-hmm. to how starting pitchers are used now. Yeah. I mean, this year, no one got to 200. 15 innings, I think, let alone 250. So we've seen just a a total sea change just in the course of Verlander's career and never more so than in October when we've seen earlier and earlier hooks for good reasons most of the time. But yeah, for him to throw 124 pitches and obviously he was brilliant and dominant and looked amazing throughout. But you, you wouldn't have thought that we were at this point where we could still see something like this. In fact, you tweeted something to that effect, right? Like a day before about yeah, how we was, wouldn't uh, see something I, like this again. I, I thought about, uh, yeah, it was, it was Keuchel's first start in the division series in 2015. I was covering that game for Grantland. And I remember thinking that was a lot of pitches and nobody had thrown as many since. And I was mm-hmm. you know, thinking, or I thought with good reason that it would be a long time before we saw somebody get yeah. up into the 120s again. Like last year when Matt Moore went, uh, went to I think 121 uh, in his last start for the Giants like that people were talking about this like the way we talk about like 150 pitch start uh, mm-hmm. you know 10 years ago and you know it just so happens that not even 24 hours later Verlander throws exactly 124 pitches in a complete game win so mm-hmm. that's this feels obvious but I think the Astros re- you know have to be really happy with how how the team's playing right now I think that Jose Altuve sort of carried them a little bit uh through the the early stages of the division series but now Correa is mm-hmm. hitting uh you know he drove in both runs on Saturday um you know they're they're getting contributions up and down. Yuli Gurriel is quietly having a very, very good postseason. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting contributions up and down the lineup. They're not really had like the one question mark is the bullpen. They don't really have to test it. Like that's, it, you know, I wonder. Just again, going back to Verlander in the ninth, I wonder if using him there, like if Hinch had more confidence in in his middle relievers than. Uh, then maybe that's, you know, he doesn't use Verlander uh, for the mm-hmm. ninth inning there, or he doesn't stretch out Giles in game one. But, you know, it's it's been a non-issue so far. So, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that, that I sort of want to close on uh, with this series, and this applies to the second series, is whether, you know, what do you think about the home team uh, winning, going up to nothing uh, in the first two games of the series? Do you sort of view that as, as holding serve, or, you know, do you think that that's closer to, to you know, just putting the last nail in the coffin. Yeah, I would look at it as more than holding serve, I would say. I mean, if you're the home team, obviously you, and especially if you're probably the favored team as the Astros and Dodgers were heading into these series, then clearly you want to take those first two and you feel like you should, but it's it's far from a given. So I I would feel somewhat demoralized if I were on the other team. Of course, the Yankees just faced a 2 nothing deficit in the division series. And this is, uh, you know, at least they have a little more time to come back here in theory or more games remaining. But yeah, it's it's tough to go down. And, and the Astros have looked great. And really, both of these, both the Astros and the Cubs have been plagued by some bullpen issues. Their managers seem to have lost faith in a lot of their relievers, sometimes for good reason. Maybe sometimes not so much. No, Brian Dunsing (laughs) is the one trustworthy man in the Cubs bullpen right now. Right. Yeah. But the Astros have looked great. And and yeah, I mean, Altuve is like creating runs single handedly, but he's not the only one who is doing that. And and Verlander is is just amazing. And 
and yeah, as you alluded to, just like the career comeback of Verlander is a, a great storyline in itself in that, yeah, we did almost write him off. And I know he had some injury issues that weren't really public at the time, but it seemed like he was losing his stuff. And we were talking about how he had to make that transition from power pitcher to finesse pitcher. It turns out, no. Not really. Like That's what CeCe Sabathia had to do and now has done, and he'll be starting in in Game 3 for the Yankees today. But Verlander just, it turns out, didn't have to do that. He just got a second wind. He still throws really hard. And and our former guest, Tom Verducci, wrote a really great story after Game 2, which I hope he pre-wrote a little bit, because if he wrote this whole thing on deadline, I'm just going to retire and never attempt to write a game story again. Yeah, I tried but... not to think about the fact that he was in the ballpark. Was... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somehow he, he had the kind of anecdotes that just no one else gets, but he wrote about, and I think this is something that our, our friend Jonah Carey maybe first documented a little bit in a piece for Grantland a couple of years back. But Verlander used to just go out there with his gut and his instinct. And that was plenty because of the stuff he had. But he has lately become a more analytical pitcher and he's very much into preparation and stats and scouting and looking at high speed video and altering his slider in a way that has made it even more potent. And he was throwing a ton of them in this game to great effect. So, yeah, we should talk just uh, briefly, I guess, about the game ending play in game two, which, as you mentioned, I I was curious to hear how it looked in the ballpark because I read Mike Petriello's StatCast based write up of this play. And according to StatCast, the ball got to Gary Sanchez when Altuve was a full second away from the plate about 25 feet it was a really a long lot. time like <laughs> yeah. I, it, I saw i saw the ball going in the gap and you know in the post game uh joe girardi i think i think it was joe girardi was talking about uh how well judge did to to cut that ball off and i yeah. like i didn't remember seeing that because when i saw the ball go into the gap i just turned and looked at i, I was in the uh, the auxiliary press box. So the outfield was on my right side and, and the uh, and home plate was on my left. So I couldn't see both at, at once. So I immediately turned and looked at third base to see if Altuve was going. And he mm-hmm. was, you know, he just never stopped. And I just yeah. thought, oh my God, he's going to score on this. And and then all of a sudden the ball's coming, coming back in and it hit Sanchez and like, uh, yeah, like I said, there was, there, <laughs> there was a lot of time between when the ball got and it. I think uh, and uh, the Ringer account tweeted out a still of of the ball mm-hmm. like bouncing right up into Sanchez and and Altuve is not in the frame yeah. and so <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, it was it was I mean it took Judge a while to get rid of the ball because he had to run a ways to get it and then he has a lot of momentum behind him <laughs> when he moves in any way and the throw was not the greatest whatever he threw into Gregorius instead of Castro because Gregorius has the better arm and the throw was there in plenty of time and I know Gary Sanchez has taken a ton of abuse for his catching I think a lot of it unwarranted because he does a lot of things well defensively Mm -hmm. too in addition to being one of the best hitting catchers so uh, there was talk about like benching him or moving him to DH or first base and I think that's crazy talk but he took more criticism for not fielding this ball cleanly, but it was a tough play. I mean, Gregorius did not yeah, give a him shor- a I good mean, feed. It was a short hop. Yeah, that that short hop, if particularly for a catcher who's right on his knees in front of the plate, that's always a very difficult uh, mm-hmm. thing to do. You know, what I would say about Gary Sanchez, though, is that he better thank his lucky stars for Aaron Judge because he has sneakily been almost as bad. Yeah, uh, Judge's 
so since the wild card game, both of them had big games in the wild card game. Um, Judge is two for 27 with 19 strikeouts and Sanchez is four for 30 with 15 strikeouts. And in, in this, uh, in the LCS so far, he's struck out at least twice in his last six games and he's struck out five times in seven at bats, uh, against the Astros so far. So, I mean, that's, I don't know, would you call those guys the, the, the Yankees two best hitters? Like that's. And, yeah, and judges that's, that's is tough. judges at least making more contact against the Astros, but he's you know he's still only got uh, I think the one hit, so it's mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, it's rough. I don't you know I don't know what the solution is, but you know mm-hmm. it's going to be tough for them to to win, particularly if they you know we this is what this is what killed the Indians. You know their two best mm-hmm. players just didn't show up, or you know that's yeah, that right. sounds a little more normative than I than I mean it, but like you're gonna. <laughs> right. You know, you can't. It's very difficult to win if the other team's playing well and your best players aren't. Like, it's, mm-hmm. sorry if that sounds obvious, but that that could end up being the difference. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, Judge has made his moments count in this postseason. Whether it was with the home run in the wild card game, or the two run double he had in the ALDS, or even more important, the home run robbery, or even his hit with a runner in scoring position in this series that did not lead to a run because of uh, another great play at the plate with Marwin Gonzalez putting his entire body behind the throw and getting the guy at home. But, uh, you know, obviously he's taken a a lot of... uh, somewhat justified abuse for the the contact issues. And I I am curious. I mean, I haven't looked in detail at Judge and what exactly is going on with him this postseason, but he's a guy where if you look at his splits in the regular season, he does have larger than average splits when you look at like at baseball reference versus power versus finesse versus average type of pitchers. They they break that down basically uh, by how likely the, the pitcher is to get strikeouts or, or allow walks. And so power pitchers are power pitchers, finesse pitchers are finesse pitchers. And of course, everyone and, and the league as a whole does worse against power pitchers. Those are the best kind of pitchers. But Judge has a much larger split than most. He had only a 723 OPS in 178 plate appearances against power pitchers. And he just crushed finesse pitchers with a, a 1228 OPS and a 1083 OPS against average pitchers. So that's a bigger split than most. And I wonder whether he is more susceptible to that. I mean, his his big hit in the division series came, I think, on like a 99 mile per hour up and in fastball that he managed to turn on. So he has that speed. It's not like he has one of those long, slow swings, but it's possible that against strikeout pitchers, it just doesn't play well with his own strikeout tendencies. And just the fact that his strike zone is so huge and so variable, I think, really comes back to bite him a lot and. He's gotten run he's up got, on some pitches. He's gotten that, screwed on borderline pitches. Yeah, he definitely I mean, has. He struck out so many times that a couple of them are <laughs> right. just going to be bound to be bad. Yeah, yeah like but. you know, for any set of of nineteen strikeouts, two <laughs> or three of them are going to be borderline. Right. Um, one thing that I've noticed is over the course of the season, he's been somewhere between fifty and sixty percent fastballs. You know, about thirty ish percent breaking balls, and about. You know, doing the math in my head, ten percent changeups and and so on. And uh, in the month of October, more than half of the pitches that he's seen have been breaking balls. And a lot mm-hmm. of you know, I went back and for this article, I cataloged um, every single strikeout he's had in the postseason. 
And just looking at the names of the guys he struck out uh, against, you know, Bauer, Allen, Kluber, Miller, Verlander, like that's a lot of guys with really good fastballs and a really good breaking ball to pitch off of. And the other thing is like, so if you look at the the location of the pitches that he's getting, mm-hmm. um, particularly with two strikes and particularly breaking balls, like the degree to which it's concentrated away, low and away would blow your fucking mind like mm. it's like almost half the pitches that he's seen with with two strikes are outside the strike zone low and or away and he's getting a couple more sort of ticking up in the lower reaches of that strike zone he's getting a couple fastballs up and in which he's actually hit pretty well against but like everything that's killing him is that combination of of two seamer or cutter sort of at the knees and then uh, the the slider that or the the curveball that sort of looks like that up to a certain point and then drops out in a way uh, out of the strike zone, you know, like loosely pulling the football away. So this is mm-hmm. like this is textbook how you pitch to a hitter like Judge. And I guess the only thing shocking about it is that it's going to this extreme and it's working this well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a really exciting series so far. I mean, any games that just come down to one or two kind of iconic plays. It's not really what we expected from this series necessarily, but something like that Altuve play is just going to linger in our minds. And I know it summoned the Alex Gordon non-send to a, a lot of pieces, a lot of people's minds. And, you know, I don't think it's quite analogous. And this is a, a case no, I was Alex curious. Alex said that was a good hold. So right. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, I was I was curious to hear how it looked from the press box, as you were just telling us earlier, because Gary Pettis, the third base coach, said he was sending him on contact basically as soon as he saw that this was going to be a hit. And yeah, I don't think that's necessary. I mean, that might be a little aggressive. I don't think that's yeah. necessarily <laughs> crazy. I, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I was surprised the judge even got to that ball before it got to the wall. I thought right, it was gonna... and and Altuve speedy, and and he was running even faster than his typical speed on this play. And maybe the difference is that even if Altuve is thrown out there, you still have Correa on second, so you have a runner in scoring position who will score on a hit anyway. So you know, obviously having the guy at third who could come in with one out on a sack fly or something, the odds of scoring there are better, but you weren't out of the inning if he does get thrown out there. And so, uh, you know, maybe most of the time that doesn't work out, but I think it was defensible and it was certainly yeah. exciting. That's the thing that we always say about yeah, the Alex Gordon <laughs> play. It's like we, whether it was smart or not to hold him, we were deprived of like an all-time classic, mm-hmm. amazing, exciting baseball play. And this time we were not. So... This has been fun, and I'll be at some of the games in New York, so we will talk about this series more next time. But let's take a quick break here from our sponsor, and we'll be back to talk about the NLCS. I want to take a minute to tell you about an amazing hotel booking app, Hotel Tonight. Basically, Hotel Tonight teams up with great hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means there are always incredible deals available. These aren't last resort places. They're cool, top-rated hotels you actually want to stay in. Not to mention, with a ton of awesome partner hotels in so many different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. Whether I want to spend the weekend away on a whim or book myself a staycation at a cool local place, Hotel Tonight is helping me be just a little more spontaneous. Okay, not spontaneous enough to go on a honeymoon after my wedding, waiting for the playoffs to be over. But when I get around to it, Hotel Tonight will be helpful. 
not great at planning in advance. I didn't get the discounted block rate at my own wedding hotel. I waited too long to book, so I need to use Hotel Tonight. And if you are a better travel planner than I am, you can actually book in advance. It's not just for last-minute getaways. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So see for yourself. Download the Hotel Tonight app now. Okay, so we are now going to talk about the NL Championship Series, which the Dodgers are leading to nothing. You saw more of Game 1 than I did because that was my wedding night, and I saw more of Game 2 than you did. So basically, this has been another fairly low-scoring series with some great pitching performances and also controversial plays at the plate. So a lot of similar notes here that we can talk about. But the big storyline, obviously, coming into this series was the surprise omission of Corey Seager. From the roster, Seeger hurt his back after the ALDS reportedly. And, you know, losing any one player in a baseball series, you know, a seven game series, most of the time that's not going to swing a game one way or another. But going from Corey Seeger, who is like Corey a top Seager's five player in baseball yeah. <laughs> yeah, over the last couple of years to Charlie Culberson or anyone that the Dodgers could have used in place of Seeger, that is a, a big drop off. And yet they have still managed to take these first two games. So that's huge. And I would assume that this back injury is not serious and that Seeger could potentially come back for the World Series if they get there. And they're now halfway there. So. We got another Kershaw start. It was not brilliant, but not disastrous. They actually got him out of the game early instead of leaving him in to be pummeled in the seventh inning. Again, he was brought out after five and Dodgers bullpen has looked really good. Kenta Maeda is just a, a relief ace all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Didn't necessarily foresee this, but they now have a few guys they can trust in the back of the pen and they've had some timely hitting. Puig was the star in game one. Turner was the star in game two, and that's how you end up with a 2 nothing lead. Culberson's played really well. Like, this yeah. is the ultimate you can't predict baseball right. roster move. Because, like, not only has he doubled in each of the first two games, but he's gone around, like, after the Cubs have taken early leads both times, it was Culberson who scored the game-tying run in both games. So, like, he's played he, not only hitting, but hitting at the right time. So that's mm -hmm. been, been huge. I think the, I mean, what you were talking about with Maeda... And with Brandon Morrow as well, like yes. that's that's the ball game for the Dodgers. Is mm -hmm. what no matter what else they've done over the past five years to assemble a bullpen, they've pumped resources into it. They moved starters back there. They've done you know they mixed mixed and matched in the rotation and moving guys in and out of the rotation uh, in the playoffs. And they've just never had the guy to get from Kershaw to Jansen. And yep. that's been I mean it's been the whole story nothing else that they've done has mattered and now you know if Mauro Maeda are that guy Josh Fields has, has pitched okay and Tony Watson has uh, turned out to be trustworthy to my mild surprise uh, mm -hmm. uh, in these playoffs so like that just they're not getting killed in the middle innings and the Cubs just don't have that right now. They're they're at a mm. point where John Lackey's coming out of the bullpen. Old ass John Lackey is right. coming into for the highest leverage, uh, <laughs> you know, highest leverage at bats of the game. So mm -hmm. it's really stupid that a baseball series can come down to who has the, you know, who's ninth, tenth, and eleventh best pitchers are better. Mm -hmm. But you know, it it just doesn't happen that way in other sports. But yeah. it's just how baseball works and you know it introduces a lot of the the weirdness that is 
why we love it so much. And yeah, and and Madden seems to have really lost faith in in some cases. I was going to say lost the plot, hump the bunk, that, like that. That's- yeah, I, I mean. He made the swap of of taking Justin Wilson off the roster. He was on the ALDS roster, and it just seemed like Madden was not going to go to him for any kind of important situation. So why was he even there? And Madden made the change to swap him out in favor of Hector Rondon, who has been another guy Madden has lost faith in at, at various times. But sure enough, he took the loss in game one. Yeah, and you know, getting another righty in there maybe was uh, a good thing, especially with Seeger out as it happened. And he was really riding Edwards very hard, using him in every game in the NLDS, of course. So it was good to give him a, a bit of a breather, although he still ends up pitching too. And yeah, there just isn't anyone there. I mean, even... Wade Davis at the back of the bullpen is is not quite in the Jansen class anymore. And he was uh, really laboring at, at the end of the NLDS. He was asked to pitch a, a very long time and just barely squeaked out of that one. So, yeah, you end up in this situation where in game two, you've got John Lackey on the mound in a tie game in the bottom of the ninth. And granted, this was a, a game that could have gone to extras. Maybe you would have need, needed some length there, but that is not probably the guy that anyone really wants to see in that, you know, lose a, a allow a run and, and you lose a situation. And he did not last long before he uh, gave up a couple of walks and then Justin Turner made him pay. Yeah. And here's the thing about like needing length, like you're at no point in the extra innings of a, of a playoff game. Do you want anybody but the best pitcher for that situation on the mound if you can help it? Mm-hmm. Like, and this is why it's so puzzling to me. Like the Yankees, and even like not only in normal circumstances, but being able to get such such a, a length out of out of Green and Canley and Robertson in the middle innings, like they've got they're carrying Jaime Garcia and Jordan Montgomery in that bullpen, and like those guys aren't going to pitch. Mm-hmm. They're certainly not going to pitch for any length of time that would justify keeping two starters back there. And you know the same thing, like it's only been a couple days since Davis and like there were injury concerns surrounding him coming into this season that might have played into Kansas City's decision to trade him in the first place mm-hmm. but you know he might be their only trustworthy reliever right now and you you invoked his what was it a seven out saving game five of the division yeah. series it's a pity that that's no longer timely enough for us to talk about because mm-hmm. as wild baseball games go that <laughs> right. was up there yes it definitely was we could have spent the whole episode on that but unfortunately the schedule didn't work out that way but yeah, it's been, you know, and this is something that uh, Joe Sheehan pointed out in his series preview is that the Dodgers led the league in uh, on base percentage and walk rate and Cubs relievers had by far the highest walk rate of any bullpen. And we've kind of seen them come back to bite them a bit. And John Lackey, of course, is not usually a Cubs reliever, but he is a Cubs reliever now. And he issued a, a couple free passes in that ninth inning before the big blow from Turner. But we should go back to to game one and, of course, talk about Yasiel Puig, who was the offensive star in that game with the double and with the home run. And of course, with bat flips and admiring hits. And I really kind of thought we were past the point of people being mad about Yasiel Puig's body language or behavior. Uh, but 
clearly not. <laughs> we have not moved past that as a society. Not, not so. realizing what we're past is is about <laughs> the the take that I would expect from someone who was bandying about the Constitution's emoluments clause. Like anybody <laughs> cared about this for uh-huh. for months and months on end. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever. There was the, like, the Keith Elberman tweet, which was roundly criticized for for not liking. I mean, look, I don't even enjoy bat flips as much as most people do, but I like what bat flips represent, which is that players have personalities and they can express them on the field. And Puig always has personality, even like watching him in game two, there was uh, an at bat where he was just taking pitches and like he bat flips like no one else. He takes pitches like no one else. Like he very, very clearly telegraphs that he is not going to swing it at the pitch. Mm-hmm. He does this huge like lead leg kick and just very exaggeratedly does not swing at a pitch and just everything he does he is doing it in a way that is unique to him and I like that and I think a lot of people like that kind of thing and are coming around to that kind of thing and bat flip specifically I mean unless it's like a a really extreme one I'm I don't want to say over it but it, it doesn't give me a a, a huge and, thrill, you know, but I say I say that as someone whose pinned tweet is a picture of Jose Bautista's bat flip. But that's, yeah, well, that was I mean, a special that's the, case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you talk about like really extreme examples. That was I just one of my <laughs> one of the the most intense moments in recent baseball history. Yes, definitely. So they called for a bat flip like that. Sure. Yeah, your routine run in the mill bat flip at this point does does not really get me going. But I obviously want players to be able to do that if they feel moved to do that. And I think the sport as a whole is moving toward that or things like that being acceptable. But Puig still still the lightning rod, even though he is no longer either the star he was early in his career or the disappointment he was in a couple subsequent years. He's settled into a middle range where he is just a, a productive, you Good. know, above yeah. average player, not not a superstar, but he has not been a focal point for criticism in the way that he has been in the past. Every now and then he'll be late for batting practice or something, but not a distraction in the way that he was early on, as Molly Knight chronicled in her book about the Dodgers. And so he has kind of matured, it seems, but not in a way that has stripped him of his you know, ability to emote and be himself on the field. And when he is going well, that seems to energize everyone. And it's definitely fun for the fans. And so it's nice to see him be the offensive star if yeah. someone was going to be. His entire rookie year was just concern troll columns about what if he overthrows the cutoff man in a <laughs> right. playoff game. And it turns out that guy is just unfathomably clutch. And that's that's giving me no end of joy. I'll say the other thing, like, you know, no doubt he has improved and, you know, the his relationship with Turner Ward has been been well, uh, well documented. And, you know, I think everybody just sort of, you know, I was an asshole when I was 22 and I was a different person when when mm-hmm. I was 26 or 27. Yeah. But I think also part of it is a lot of the I think the some of the Dodgers who were particularly bothered by by Puig's antics are no longer with the team. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, that's so like, yeah, he has some he tenure will, now. Maybe he wasn't the problem. Maybe <laughs> like to a certain extent, you know, like other people were also the problem. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's cool. He's the, having the a good cultural series. adjustment yeah. and the language barrier. And, you know, if you were an asshole when you were 22, you didn't even have the excuse of having just come over from Cuba with everything mm-hmm. that he had to, to go through to get here. So, I mean, 
that should be a big adjustment for anyone. And so I, I always wondered whether he would eventually reach the stage of his career where he was like the, you know, the, the veteran mentor type on the clubhouse. And he's not quite there yet, but I could definitely see him in his 30s almost transitioning into like the Adrian Beltre type role. I would not at Jason all be surprised. Yeah, yeah, or that too, formerly maligned scandal ridden player who then became this great clubhouse presence and imparted lessons to the next generation. I could totally see that happening. Yeah. One other thing I want to say, sort of moving on from Puig is like Turner uh, hitting that walk off home run just underscores how big a postseason he's having. Like mm-hmm. Talk about, you know, guys who I think who hardcore baseball fans are, are certainly well acquainted with, but, you know, casual fans who, you know, the kind of people who watch a Sunday afternoon game and then the playoffs like might, you know, there are probably people who are getting into baseball right now who had no idea who Justin Turner was before that, uh, this postseason. So mm-hmm. I, you know, speaking of guys who, who sort of look distinctive on the field, he's, he's, uh, performed in a big way. Like he's been the national league's Altuve in terms of how hot he's been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the controversial play, I suppose, was the one in game one where Joe Madden got himself ejected after a replay review on a play at the plate that led to an out call and an overturning of a safe call because Wilson Contreras, it was determined, had a leg essentially splayed over home plate yeah. or blocking the path of the runner before he actually had the ball. And This was not really a a case where he was necessarily endangering the runner, but it was against the the letter of the law. And I think it's worthwhile to uphold the letter of the law because I think on the whole, it's helped player safety, both catchers and runners. And Madden here says he, you know, he went out to get thrown out basically. And it was probably more of a fire. I think it's one of those situations. Yeah. Where like he needs to get tossed over that. Uh That's just something that, that a manager does as far as the rule itself. Like it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, so on one, there are two reasons that, that I'm okay with this being called interference. Like, regardless of whether it is the rule which it is Mm -hmm. and you know there's only so much you can argue about against it but uh um like whether it should be two things one like this is in you know you can't you can't set a screen in baseball like baseball is not the kind of sport where you ought to be able to like even when infielders like uh, set up a, a leg in front of the base just because that's sort of how they come down when they're receiving the throw and the you know the the player uh, or the the base runner winds up sliding in and hitting their leg and then mm-hmm. you know missing out like it's just it just strikes me as bullshit to to give the the runner anything but full access to the base he's trying to reach whether it's one of the three bases or home and the other thing is like it's a it's a player safety issue like mm-hmm. it's Buster Posey's knee it's you know guys get you know, catchers getting who are routinely taking foul balls off the mask anyway getting lit up like this is NFL blitz like mm-hmm. this isn't it's just not something we should want in, in the game knowing what we know about uh, about player injuries and you know this this game is as dangerous as it's ever been for numerous reasons just because everybody's throwing harder everybody's bigger yep. and stronger and running faster so you know just in terms of keeping people safe and this is one of those issues where i can tell like i feel comfortable with my opinion because of the counter because because of the nature of the counter arguments mm-hmm. like it's all oh this isn't how it used to be or like right. you know we can't you know we can't change or, or baseball's getting soft and you know it's just 
it's not a it's not an argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fairness to the Cubs, I mean they've played pretty well. We've seen great defensive plays by Javi Baez and Addison Russell. Addison Russell continued his hitting, hit a, a solo shot for Cubs only run in Game Two, and. I mean, the the Dodgers have made them work and Lester walked five guys and that's uh, largely a, a product of the Dodgers' patience and selectivity and Lackey didn't get an out in, in game two, but in fairness to him, he, he did get five outs in game one and didn't allow a run and maybe bringing him back so soon, that's not something he has conditioned to do. So it hasn't been a, a lopsided series. It's been a fun one and the final scores, if anything, at least in the second game, make it look less close than it actually was during the game. So it's been competitive and it's been fun. And I, I guess maybe we can end. We, we've got 2 nothing series here and the Cubs will head back to Chicago on Tuesday and they'll have Hendricks and Arietta, and the Dodgers will have Darvish and Alex Wood finally making his first postseason start. So of the two series we've discussed here in the two two nothing deficits, which to you seems like the more likely comeback possibility? I don't, you know, I say this not thinking that it's at all likely, yeah. but I, you know, I think the Yankees have a better shot at coming back for two reasons. One, it's for them. I really think it's more, um, more uh, a a case and i think this is true for both teams but it's a case of them just running into a better team like it's not that the yankees are playing badly it's just that the astros have gotten two outrageous pitching performances Mm -hmm. and they've you know gotten lucky on a a couple defensive plays and they've come up with the timely hits and there's not you know to a certain extent there's just not that much you can do about it the other thing is the you know they're going to get into uh sort of the the soft underbelly of the Astros rotation. I think they're more for the taking than Wooden Darvish are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and we don't even, the Astros haven't officially announced a game four starter as we speak. They've got Morton going in game three and Yankees of course have Sabathia. And so they'll probably have the edge in starting pitching and in these upcoming games and they'll have Sonny Gray in game four. They'll be at home obviously. So I think I would agree with you there. I think probably in terms of just team talent, this is maybe less of a mismatch than the Cubs Dodgers series is. So I'm with you, but obviously, you know, yeah, when the better said, team is, like, is ahead to nothing in a series, you, you don't forecast a comeback. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's, yeah, I think it's more likely that this season or this series doesn't even get back to Houston than it is that the Yankees come back and win it. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think part of that is it's the combination of the belief that the Astros are the better team, which I think, you know, it's, it's it's with due respect to how well the Yankees have pitched and as close as the games have been. I think that's that's the conclusion you draw from from the series so far. And just they're up two games already. Mm-hmm. Like it's you know, you take any combination of two baseball teams and put them together, and it's not likely that one of them is going to win four out of five. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that uh, I was talking to somebody at Minute Maid about how this is, you know, he compared the, uh, what this Yankees team to the 2015 Cubs. Like, they're just going to keep bringing guys up. Like, I don't think that there's anything that, that really stands out as a weakness that the Yankees need to fix. Like that's going to send into send them into some sort of existential, like we need to, to clean houses sort of, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Cubs, you know, I, th- I think that's largely true for the Cubs, except, you know, they probably, they're probably going to go invest some more in, in the bullpen. I think that that is, uh, it's a glaring insoluble weakness, but it's too late to do anything about that now. So, you know, let's strap in with John Lackey and, and keep riding. Mm-hmm. 
By the way, Madden, in explaining his decision not to use Wade Davis in that potential walk-off situation in the ninth, said, we needed Davis for the save. So shades of Showalter, shades of Matheny, etc. I think this is the turning point for Joe Madden. I think last year's World Series would have been if things had gone if very slightly won. differently. Yeah. Like we are like we are past the peak of Joe Madden as baseball's cool uncle, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, he is he is wearing more and more cool uncle outfits to his press conferences. But God, did you see what he wore? But was that before game one? Yes, I, I certainly oh did. <laughs> that was that was a little flashy even for him. And I don't know if he quite pulled it off, but yeah, I mean, Madden is not really a, a brilliant tactical manager, and here he was making the managerial mistake or or the tendency that often gets managers killed in the postseason and the classic kind of tie game on the road, not using the closer sort of situation. And and this was that. And yeah, maybe you could have brought in Davis extending extending the game an inning or two and and you still have Lackey in reserve if you need some innings if it goes into extras. So Another case of the best pitcher in the bullpen not being used when the game is over. Never fun to see that. So what did you want to end on? I wanted to end on two funny postgame uh, uh, anecdotes. Oh, yes. Somebody, so Girardi, he, right? Uh, yeah, it was yeah. Girardi, the, you know, the chall- he challenged one of the, the – I actually forget which one it was, but it was it involved Brett Gardner, and he said, no, we thought he was out, but God knows where I'm not doing that again. Yes, like, right. It was that play at the plate, right? With the, yeah. the Marwin Gonzalez throw, maybe. Gonzalez yeah, so yeah, he's so, learned his lesson. <laughs> from, yeah, and also yeah. from game one, uh, there's been a lot made about how uh, Verlander and Keuchel both struck out double-digit batters, and that it only happened, so that happened in back-to-back games after only happening twice in Astros postseason history, dating back to... Uh, you know, I think their I think their first playoff appearance was in 1980, but you know, I could be wrong about that. But that also happened uh, in the same series in 1986, and the first two guys to do it were Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan. And somebody told Dallas Keuchel about that. He said, "Well, that makes sense because you know, you know, I'm pretty much the same kind of pitcher as Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan." <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, we will wrap it up there. We'll be back Thursday. Of course, we might be doing postmortems on these series by then, or maybe we'll be talking about interesting turns that they took to become more competitive. But either way, we will be back. And you've been listening, as always, to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. Things change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotels Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now. 